This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. This week, we're looking back to a popular podcast from March 2020, number 106, entitled Every Performance is Like Building a Sandcastle, where I had a lovely catch-up with New York-based electric flutist and author Melissa Keeling. During this podcast, we spoke about the unique Glissando flute head joint and the new tutor book on it that she had written. How this new head joint can open up so many more performance possibilities, especially when paired with looping and effects pedals. As you will hear, we also listened during the podcast to some of Melissa's chosen works on the Glissando head joint, as well as with looping and effects pedals. As Melissa says, when you break open your old mindset, you'll find anything is possible. So, Melissa, the electric flutist. We have so much to talk about. I don't know where to start, really. Um, let's start with your work. Now, let's go back to the basics. When I first heard you, San Diego, NFA, I was wandering past a hall. And I heard what I thought was Van Halen coming out of the door. And I opened up and went inside. And you were in there playing mm-hmm. with speakers and sounding very much like an electric guitar. In fact, playing the flute like I've never heard it before. And we got, to, I sort of met you after that, and we got to talk, and we've known each other ever since. But the way that you can play your music is based around one very important part of your instrument, isn't it? I, well, I like to consider it part of my instrument by this point. <laughs> yeah, what is it? I mean, it's known as the glissando head joint, isn't it? Uh, yes, well, that's just part of my setup, but I am seriously obsessed with this head joint. It's an invention by Robert Dick, who I was so grateful to have had the opportunity to study with. And this head joint does for the flute what the whammy bar does for the electric guitar. So that's why I thought that a Van Halen piece would be a really perfect place to play with the glissando head joint. So what it does, it's like um, two tubes that slide in and out of each other. And as you play, you can slide this, the head joint out, which lowers the pitch. Uh, it's about a minor third or so, depending on the fingering that you're using at that moment. So it actually does tons of other things besides just play bends. And we can talk about that in a little, little bit, but... You know, adapting to guitar music, especially when you're using effects pedals, having that that glissando head joint really adds an entirely new dimension to the expressiveness of what the flute can do. So being very crude, it's like the listeners imagining a trombone slide and a lip plate on the trombone slide and you can move it up and down, but you're moving it with your chin rather than your hand. That's a really great analogy. It's exactly right. It's a lot like a trombone, except not (laughs) that long. But yeah, there's uh, two pieces of metal that come off from the lip plate that wrap around your jaw. Mm -hmm. So as you play, you can move your arms away from you to lengthen the head joint 
and those wings on your chin help scoot the head joint in and out. Now, I've heard you play with the glissando head joint without all the speakers and the looping pedals, and it sounds just as incredible because the, the amount of flexibility you have, it, you sort of draw the audience in because we're sat there going, crikey, how can you do that? <laughs> well, that's great to hear. I, you know, the head joint has been around, wow, almost 20 years now. It came out in 2003, and cool story, actually. Robert Dick, the inventor of this head joint, actually inspired me to be a flutist in the very beginning days of me being a flutist at all. He came to my town in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I grew up, and I had no clue who he was, but I went to his recital, and I remember standing there in the audience, like, total moment of destiny, have never felt this again in my life, really, that I'm going to be a flute player. Now I know what I'm going to do with my life. I want to play music like Robert. This is it. That same year, a couple months later, he publicly premiered the Glissando Head Joint at NFA, where we met, for the very first time. So I kind of feel like I was born as a flutist the same time this head joint was born into the world, so to speak. So flash forward a few more years, and this was NFA again, Charlotte, North Carolina, 2012. And I was finally going to get to meet Robert for the first time in person. I wanted to study with him. So I wanted to meet him at NFA and talk to him. So I code to meet him at NFA, and he is holding a glissando head joint in his hand, and he just gives it to me. And it's like, here, try this out. What do you think? Tell me what you think. And I was so nervous. I had never played one before, and here I was meeting the man himself at NFA. Uh, so I, I tried my best. I <laughs> don't want to say I panicked, but um, I tried. I did something. I, I played a little happy birthday or something with the glissando head joint and passed the test. But that was the first time I met Robert. He handed me this head joint. And that was my audition for him in a way. So, I, yeah, I got to study with him after that, thankfully. So, so happy. So my whole flute journey has been really entwined with Robert Dick, his music and his inventions, his head joint. So it's been really interesting for me looking back to kind of see how all the pieces kind of fell into place in a really, you know, destined kind of way. And do you think that you would have been able to get, and you and Robert will be able to get the Glissando head joint out to the masses without the use of YouTube and social media? Because that is a very good platform mm. for you to get the sound out isn't it because it's about the sound as well oh yeah for sure i mean youtube and social media are revolutionized the music industry you know, for sure so being able to share instantly a video of anyone playing it is so powerful you don't have to go and travel anywhere and you know hope that 10 people show up for the flute recital or 100 people <laughs> there's yes. thousands of potential listeners so it's really rapidly spread especially with social media i'd say for sure should we hear the glissando head joint in action oh definitely what have you chosen melissa this is one of my solos called tilt it's not just for glissando flute but also glissando flute with effects pedals so 
there's a, a lot going on here, but I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you will. So, Tilt by Melissa Keeling. Oh, well, Melissa, I've had the advantage of listening to you play the Glissando Head in the past, but that track is absolutely wonderful. Bravo. Thank you so much. You mentioned the, the use of electric pedals and how you can combine the Glissando with all your setup to really give it, put it into a different dimension, really. Mm-hmm. What, well, what is your type of setup? Well, for my effects pedals, let's see. Well, for this piece, I'm using a harmonizer, which adds an octave below what I'm playing. So to deepen the range of the flute is a pretty big benefit since it's such a high-range instrument. And I use a lot of delay and tilt as well. The delay just creates an echo, so that way it seems like there's greater dimension to the sound since, as I say, the flute is such a monophonic, melodic instrument, yeah. to add some depth to the sound is a really powerful thing to what the flutist can do. Mm-hmm. So, so about all these things, uh, you know, the glissando head join and the pedals, I am a gear head for sure, but it's always about how to expand the musical possibilities of what I can do as a flutist. So that's what this is all about, and it's easy for me to focus on the actual pedals, but it is always for a musical purpose. Oh, absolutely. So you're playing into a microphone. That microphone is then taking the flute sound into a mixer? I'm going straight into a vocal processor first, which is like a small box on my pedal board. Mm -hmm. And since it's designed for vocalists, it... Um, is designed to take a mic input, whereas the guitar pedals, of course, are designed for guitar input, which is a completely different thing. So to get it to go into a vocal pedal first really helps to set the mic settings and the gain and all sorts of things before it goes out to various guitar pedals. It just sounds, obviously, through 
on through audio on a podcast it sounds quite complicated but i've seen you do a setup we did you did that little class at the nfa um crikey minneapolis and mm-hmm. you actually broke it down and made it seem actually very easy to do and easy to explore yeah, it, thinking talking about it does make it sound complicated, but I think just I'm a visual learner, so looking at it, there's really only the three steps. You have the microphone, which you can use even your most basic vocal microphone. You're going into these pedals, which are you know just independent boxes. You can mm-hmm. just easily turn them on or off with your foot, and then. From that, it goes to your speakers. So there's just really three, three stages there. And when you first put in those pedals, what did it feel like when you first heard the mm. the uh, the flute sound go from being a basic flute sound? And that's word weird, isn't it? Basic flute sound, but being a flute sound mm. to being able to do weird things with it. That really changed my life. I remember that so vividly. And I talked a little earlier about how hearing Robert for the first time was like a moment of destiny. And I, this was another one, actually. I was uh, just finishing up my undergraduate degree in music education. And it was the last month of the degree program. And I had been practicing and doing all of the great things that you do in music school. And but I had been feeling so jaded and disappointed that I didn't feel like I really had my own voice as a musician. Like I felt competent in playing scales and playing Mozart and Beethoven, and I love that stuff. But I didn't feel like I had a voice. So I was ready to kind of cut my losses and say, you know, I've spent a lot of time with the flute, but I'm going to focus primarily on education and, you know, set this aside. At the time, my boyfriend, now he's my husband, he is an electric guitar player. And I went to visit him after school one day, and he had these pedals laid out, and he was just having the best time practicing. And that was what I wanted to, because practicing for me wasn't as much fun as I had wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, man, Michael, I got to figure out how to make this work with the flute. Is that even possible? And at the time, I didn't know any other flutists who were doing this to ask for help or guidance or see how they do it. But we got a microphone together and figured out a way to make it work. And I very clearly remember I was sitting on the floor. There was a giant guitar amp right next to me. And I had a distortion pedal on. And the very first time I played and heard that distortion come through, I was like, this is my voice. I don't know how to use this at all yet. <laughs> I don't even know what all it can do. But it's the, the very first moment I was like, okay, well, this is it. Now I got to figure out how to write music with this. This is now my voice. And the rest was history. It took several years to figure out what effects work with the flute and how to get the setup exactly right. And there's so many different ways to do it. But What's so exciting to me is that there are lots of flutists who are doing this nowadays. I'm not, not the only one. And everyone does it their own way. And yeah, that's, that's great, really exciting it? to see. There isn't, there is not one dimensional, is it? it it's, there is so many different angles and ways that you can actually introduce and incorporate the, this, this type of setup. 
Right. And what I think is beautiful is just hearing other people's original music just come from them. And it's there's so so many of flutists out here in the world doing our thing right now that there is room for everyone to do kind of what they want. So to have this new kind of culture of people writing their own music is just really exciting to me. And having these pedals really broadens the musical palette of what you're able to do as a soloist and as a composer and as a musician. So it's a really exciting time. Should we hear something else from you, Melissa? Sure. Let's listen to your arrangement of Hoover's Coccapelli. Tell me about it. Well, this piece was really is really special to me, of course, as a female composer. Mm. Um, and this was also my late father's favorite piece that he ever heard me play live. So it has a really personal meaning to me as well. And I wrote this arrangement right after Hoover passed as a way to honor her and how much her music means to me. I tried to stick as true to what she has on paper, of course, but I did add some effects, which I hope were you know, enhanced what she had written. And we can talk a little bit about that after we listen. Oh, well, Melissa, that was beautiful. That was absolutely mm. stunning. So what made you play around with it? Well, right, this is such a special piece to me, but I wanted to add my own little flair to it and hopefully add to what Hoover had on the paper. So as you might know, this 
piece was inspired by a Native American story of Coco Pelli. And in the program notes to the piece, Hoover writes about this fertility god that would come out at night and dance through the canyons and how the, the piece, as she wrote it, was supposed to reflect the, the giant canyons of the American West. So I wanted to kind of run with that idea of the canyon sound. And unfortunately, I've never actually been to the you know, Grand Canyon, but I can only imagine what it would be like to play a flute in that kind of landscape and how enormous the sound would be and how long you would hear it decaying into the distance and bouncing off of the different cliffs. So of course I have a pedal called a delay pedal that basically emulates that sound. So there's specific points in the piece where I turn on the delay pedal to really enhance that echo feel of, you know, Coco Pelli and where is he and where, what's going on there in the um, programmatic story. I also add another effect, a harmonizer. It's a octave below harmonizer, which is, as you've noticed, something that I use a lot. It's such a powerful addition to the flute sound to have that lower octave reinforced. So I turn on this lower octave pedal in the forte and the fortissimo sections of the piece so as to even bring that dynamic difference into even more contrast. So hopefully it's not taking away from what Hoover wanted, but really expanding it and making it even more powerful. So did you have the narrative in your head when you, we obviously had the narrative in your head when you're writing the piece, that's a silly thing to ask, but how did it develop from the, did you create this visual story? Did you imagine yourself stood at the bottom of the Grand Canyon communicating? How did, you, how did it all start? Well, I think that feeling started from when I originally learned this piece back in undergrad without effects pedals. Yeah. And I'm a really emotional kind of player. So for me to have that kind of vision or imagination going on really helps me to emote what I'm trying to communicate with the audience. Yeah, and like I said, you don't, you don't Uber, overplay it. You do it in exactly the right place to me. You don't overplay the, the effects. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really easy to kind of go crazy with the effects. <laughs> and, but a little bit goes a long way with these things. I've, I've deviated off, haven't I? I've deviated off when I was talking about Glissando, the Glissando head, and you've written a new book. That's right, the Glissando Flute Handbook for Composers and Performers. Now, this would go perfectly with the, the head joint, and, well, it only goes with the head joint, doesn't it? But for me, that, would, that, that, that is the hook to actually get, getting me to go and buy one. Well, I hope so. I, you know, there, when I started playing the Glissando head joint, uh, well, it's been about four years now. I quickly realized that there was literally, wow, two articles written about it. There was Robert Dick's fingering chart that he um, has published mm -hmm. to accompany the head joint. But that was literally it. And as an improviser, I just have fun playing around with things and figuring out how they work. And I slowly just started to accumulate like a few notes to myself. You know, oh, here's what works well. Here's a technique that I've discovered that I really like. I'm going to use this in a piece one day. 
And then more and more people started asking me about how it works. What does it look like? Uh, how, what does the notation look like? What are some exercises to get better at playing the glissando head joint? Why in the world would I even want to play one of these things? So I quickly realized that, wow, there's so much here. And people really seem to be interested in it because of how powerful it is for music, like we talked about earlier. So it's grown and grown. Now it's, uh, I think it's about 90 pages long. And it's just been such a blast to put it all together. And I'm so excited to have it coming out here in the next couple of weeks. Well, for me, it's, as I said, it will open up new opportunities because I've tried the glissando head joint. I loved it, but wouldn't mm-hmm. know what to do with it when if I had one. Mm. Um, I wouldn't know where to start because the first thing you do is you go, wow, yow, and that's great, isn't it? And then you think, now what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. But I think it's awesome that you've tried one. Oh, absolutely. That's the first step for a lot of people. you got to try one. It can do so much more than the glissando. And obviously the name is the glissando head joint, so it does that very well. But there are so many other things that you can do with it. Um, it extends your low range a whole step. So with a B foot, now you can play all the way down to low A. This is really awesome when you're playing transcriptions like for violin or oboe that go down to low A, for example. Um, Not to mention when you're improvising, now you have extra notes down there. It also makes it really easy to play microtones and quarter tones, which is used a lot in contemporary flute music. And I don't know if any of you guys have played any microtones on the flute, but the fingerings are ridiculous and really hard to remember. (laughs) So with the glissando head joint, you can just pull the head joint out slightly, and there you go. You have your B quarter flat or whatever you need. Um, It also changes the timbre of the instrument, so you can really use it to modify your sound. If it's um, pulled out, the timbre changes to be more hollow. So that's a pretty useful technique right there. Um, As far as multiphonics go, there's multiphonics that you can play on the glissando head joint that aren't even possible without the head joint. Just the way the acoustics and the physics work with it. You can play new multiphonics that were before impossible. And you can play, you can transpose a multiphonic fingering really easily. So if you know one multiphonic that you're really good at, your favorite one, you can play that one, keep your fingers the same, pull the head joint out. Now you have the multiphonic that's transposed lower. So it makes it really easy to access these multiphonics and their transpositions. I can't, when all of this is a huge world, right? It is a huge world, and I can't emphasize more. This is not a gizmo gadget. This actually will enhance your flute playing. Right, that's, that's it. And I think the name is misleading because it limits what people perceive that it can do. But the most powerful thing that I think that it can do is it allows the flutist to play portamento. Yes. And this isn't something we've talked about as flutists because our instrument doesn't do portamento naturally. But portamento is when you add these very small bends when you're approaching or leaving a note. If you listen to a singer, a guitar player, a jazz trumpet player, 
of course, a trombonist, especially in jazz, they all do portamento. And they don't necessarily even think about it. I mean, you listen to someone like Frank Sinatra. Without this portamento style, I don't think that he would have the draw or the appeal. That's what people love about his voice. Or um, Louis Armstrong, jazz player. He's a legend. Well, one of the main things he started doing was adding these bends to sound like a vocalist. Um, you listen to a great guitarist like David Gilmour with Pink Floyd. He was known for his bending technique and even his overbending technique, which I create an analogy of how to do that on the glissando flute in my book. You listen to someone like Jimi Hendrix, who really was one of the greatest, in my opinion, rock guitarists ever. Well, he, he was famous for using the whammy bar, which is the exact same thing as the glissando head joint. So there's so many legendary musicians that use bending and portamento in their music that really revolutionized what they were doing and allowed them to create such a strong voice for themselves. So now with this head joint, flutists can do this too. And that's what to me is most exciting about the head joint. Well, to me, the head joint's exciting, but even more exciting is you've actually written a book about it, which will un <laughs> unlock its secrets for me. So the, the name of the book and where we can find it, Melissa? It's called The Glissando Flute, Handbook for Composers and Performers. You'll be able to get this on my website, melissakeeling.com, and Flute Specialist is also planning to distribute the book as well. That is absolutely, I'm certainly going to get myself a copy. Well, I'll probably get a few copies, actually, because I have a habit of losing <laughs> music. You know what that's like. Yeah, I understand the feeling completely. <laughs> we'll get you one for sure, Jean-Paul. <laughs> You're so kind. Right, on to another. I want to hear more of your music. You've chosen one more. And I like the, you know, we're, I live in England. We have castles everywhere. And you've chosen this really nice piece called Moving Castles. Moving Castles. It's interesting that you bring up the castles from your country. We have none of these here in America. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I lived at the beach, and uh, the title was actually named after sandcastles. Ah. And this idea that when you're making a sandcastle, that sometimes it comes out perfectly, sometimes half of it falls down, sometimes it looks beautiful, but then a wave comes in and takes it away, and now there's nothing. And to me, that's a lot like being a composer and playing your own music. Sometimes it works, sometimes it looks great, <laughs> and you're lucky. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, it's music. It's an ephemeral thing, and you play it, and that's it. Luckily, we have recordings nowadays, so I'm happy to share Moving Castles with you.
Oh, that was really beautiful, Melissa. That was absolutely lovely. Although thinking about it, sandcastles, I mean, they're a, they're a sort of transient thing, aren't they? Because they never stay there. Because once the tides come in, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's, like I say, kind of how music feels to me, that you're supposed to enjoy it there in that moment when you're playing it or listening to it. But, you know, you go to a concert, you don't take anything back with you physically. It's not like making visual art where you have a painting you can carry away. It's just an experience that you had, like a sandcastle. Do you know, I'd never, never thought of it like that. But you're right. Every concert is like making a sandcastle. Oh. If you enjoy it, then the, it's a bigger sandcastle. And you have a moat. And if you don't enjoy it, as you say, the half of the sandcastle doesn't come out from the bucket. Anyway, I digress, my lady. <laughs> That's right. what it's all about, actually. <laughs> um, you're not only a wonderful flute player, but your compositions are really unique. Can you tell me where your inspiration comes from? I know it's a really hard question. And if you asked any composer, where does the inspiration come from? And how does it manifest itself on paper? But when does it come to you? Because you, be, mm. you can't sit down and say, right, I'm going to compose. What actually happens and how does it sort mm. of come into your conscious and subconscious mind? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I always felt like I wanted to say something musically and finding the effects pedals was the key that I needed personally to make me feel like I had enough tools to write a piece. But yeah, you're right. You're not always feeling inspired to write something, but at the end of the day, sometimes if you just sit down and say, I'm going to try writing something right now, sometimes you surprise yourself. But, okay, something like moving, moving Castles, for example. This piece is built in a way that I've used in lots of my pieces. And I just think of it like, like a rock band. You have a rhythm section, you have a bass line, you have a harmony, and then you have a solo. And the great thing about effects pedals is I can do all that myself and I don't have to hire a band. So the first step, I think, is to think about the rhythm section. And at the beginning of Moving Castles, you hear me open with a loop of a beatbox pattern, mm -hmm. which repeats through the whole piece. Well, there's like the short introduction and then this rhythm part starts. So to create a rhythm part, this is was at least for me pretty unnatural at first as a flute player to think of what can I <laughs> contribute percussively. But um, I, I was hugely inspired by the work of Greg Patillo and I learned his piece, Three Beats for Beatbox Flute. And that's a huge tool to have as a flutist. And you know, you just play around with some sounds and eventually you're like, you know what? I think I can work with that. So I write down the rhythm for that percussion part. I can do record that on my loop station. So that way I play it once and it keeps playing over and over. So then I can write my other parts based on that. And then I think, okay, well, I need a bass line. And I'm no bassist by any stretch of the imagination, but you pick a key and kind of the mood that you want to go for. So it doesn't have to be anything fancy. It's a bass line. I think it's easy to overthink a bass line, but 
you know, we all learn music theory in college and don't overthink it. You know, you can just be a C. That's fine. I think in moving castles, it's just like a pentatonic scale, something very simple. It's a baseline. Then I can record that over my percussion loop. And then to add a harmony part, you just kind of flesh out that baseline that you originally wrote. And I, in Moving Castles, use a harmonizer to add in like a fifth below whatever note I'm playing. So that way it adds some extra texture to the sound. Simple chords, E minor, one, three, and five. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. And I think it's daunting at first, it was to me, to feel like, oh my gosh, I have to write, write music, like what do I do? But uh, after you do, the, do a beat and a bass and a harmony, then you can just improvise in E minor. And essentially that's all that Moving Castles is. And what's so amazing to me is listening back to it and it actually sounds like, you know, it's a piece. But in the creation, to me, I'm just trying to keep it as simple as I can, to be honest. Adding in delay and harmonizers really flesh it out without me having to work really, work really too hard. What's but interesting I'm not, yeah, for I'm not me, always inspired to do any of that. Yeah, what's interesting for mm -hmm. me, Melissa, is that you, were, you built the foundations first before you, you did the top line. Does it ever come to you a top line? A harmony a melody that you then have to then work downwards and is that harder uh sure it comes in different ways and a lot of the times it's just a spontaneous thing that happened tilt for example was originally just born from me making up a warm-up routine that used all of my favorite techniques at once so i could warm up in like three minutes and have covered all my bases. And eventually I was like, you know what? I'm actually, this is actually a piece of music. This isn't a warm up anymore. So sometimes they just morph on their own and it's very interesting how they come to be. You're just improvising or warming up and you're like, wow, that was a really cool melody or, oh, you know, I'm really latched on to this mode that I was playing just then. I think I just wrote a melody for that. And it helps to write it down so you can remember it later because inevitably I will forget what it, that brilliant idea I had yesterday. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it, it always, it comes to you in different forms. Uh, yeah. And I suppose because you use so many different effects, pedals, what you hear and what creativity comes in can come in, in very different, various different forms rather than just if it was me, it'd be a sure. melody. Yeah, well, having that instant feedback from hearing yourself through a delay or hearing that loop is really powerful and helpful to me because it's hard for me to write without the effects. That's part of my instrument. I don't consider it an extension of what I'm doing or a flute and then an afterthought of the effects. When I'm practicing, it's with the effects. So I hear the sound that way. Not that I don't love playing without effects because I certainly do. But especially when I'm writing, um, to have the effects on, for whatever reason, just really mm, opens up the doors and lowers my inhibitions about judging myself or judging what I'm doing and just having fun with it. And that's where a lot of it comes from is when I'm not trying to do it and I'm just trying to have fun. Melissa, what advice 
And are you not a great one for giving advice because you are, you like to watch and then you you like to enjoy. But I'd like you to break that down now. What advice would you have for aspiring flutists who seem to have reached a dead end with their motivations? How do they creatively mm. explore outside their usual comfort zones? And I know, having spoken to you many times before, you just want people to explore and expand and not be led by anybody. And I get that. But what advice would you have to enable them to do that? Well, first of all, I think that feeling is so normal and part of the journey. There's going to be ebbs and flows of how you're feeling and your interest and your motivation, your inspiration, having good tone day and bad tone day. All that stuff is really normal. <laughs> bad <laughs> so tone normal. day. You say great. Bad tone day. <laughs> oh, sorry. Bad tone day. <laughs> it happens. And I get it. I've been there. And a lot of us have been there. I think what can be helpful and what was helpful to me is just to listen to lots of music that you really just love. And that probably isn't going to be flute music. And that's fine. If you like listening to Jimi Hendrix like me, well, put on a Jimi Hendrix record. Go out to a show at you know, in your town, wherever you live, and like, just have a great time at the, at the show. Feel the energy of the music and the joy from the performers that are on stage, like a non-classical kind of setting. Like break out of what you have been doing and just try something new. If you love listening to Lady Gaga, listen to Lady Gaga, pull your flute out and play along with her record. And just have some fun playing around on your instrument. It doesn't have to be and shouldn't be a thing where you feel uh, like it's a drudgery or that you're forcing yourself to do it or that you don't want to do it or that it's not fun. Sure, there's those moments where you have to push yourself and have the discipline to practice and to do hard things and to improve. And you got to play your scales. But you should be having a lot of fun playing too. For me, that was breaking out of the classical and going and exploring and playing along with my favorite records. So when I'm feeling down, that's what I do. I put on the Beatles, whoever, Mardi Gras jazz bands, and just play along with it. I that can't, brings I can't me so much add, happiness. I really can't add any to that, anything to that because that's exactly what I do, depending on my mood or depending well, on what music I will listen to. Well, I'm glad it works for you too. It does, and I'm sure it will work for any, everybody because music is like the universal voice for an emotional transference from happiness to sadness, depending on how you're feeling. <laughs> I love that. That was magnanimous. But I agree. There's so much music, and we shouldn't limit ourselves to just classical flute music. That stuff is wonderful, don't get me wrong, but there's so much. So follow what makes you happy. We are going to play out to this beautiful Northern Lights for alto flute piece composed by yourself. Mm. Tell me a bit about this one. This is for alto and delay pedal. And I just wanted to have something that was a meditative experience. This is one of these pieces that was therapy for me to play and that it actually ended up as a piece I could present to others. I'm happy to be able to say that. You could play this without effects pedals too. You could play it on C flute, 
but to me it sounds most gorgeous on the alto. Thank you so much for having me, Jean-Paul. That is my pleasure. So thank you all for listening. May your week of music making be wonderful and may your low C sharp be particularly in tune. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.